Hello and welcome to the Wrestling Rodeo Podcast. We're currently going back in time, not to the 1980s like we have been doing, but to the middle of the 1990s, December 15th, 1995, for the Stu Hart 50th Anniversary Show. I'm your host, Paul. Alongside me is my co-host, Mitch. Hi, everybody. Mitch, as always, I'm going to ask you how you're doing. I'm doing fine. I've, I've had some vocal issues repaired, so I'm looking forward to the rest of 2020. So I'm probably rare. All right. Sounds good. So before we jump into the show, we want to talk a little bit about the venue that it took place in, the Stampede Corral. And this show was called Showdown at the Corral as a tagline. As all Calgarians know by now, the Corral currently has crews on site preparing for the demolition of the arena, just mere months shy of the 70th anniversary of its opening in December. The estimated completion of the demolition work is currently slated as March 2021 as part of the $500 million expansion to the BMO Center. There are some facades that will be preserved and some of the art around the building, including the neon cowboy sign from the outside, will be digitally preserved and are expected to eventually be recreated in some form in the expanded BMO Center. In addition to preserving the physical, it's important to preserve the memory of what the corral meant to Calgarians over the 69 years of use, a number that's unlikely to be approached by any modern arena being built in North America. The Saddle Dome is scheduled to be replaced by the new Calgary Event Center sometime in 2024, which would mean that the Saddle Dome would have had a lifespan of 51 years, assuming it's demolished immediately. The Stampede Corral opened December 15, 1950, and served as the host of many professional and junior hockey teams, indoor soccer teams, and basketball teams. Over the course of its life, there were a total of 10 sports teams that called the Corral home. The Stampede Corral was also home to a lot of Stampede wrestling history and has been used frequently by the WWE for house shows in Calgary. In addition to the use of this facility for sporting purposes, the venue provided a concert venue for smaller or mid-sized tours to use, including some huge names in rock music like Kiss, Van Halen, Rush, Pantera, and more recently, Jack White. We'd like to take a brief moment of this podcast to talk about some of our favorite memories of the Stampede Corral over the years and encourage our listeners to share their memories of the Stampede Corral with us on any of our social media platforms. Mitch, I feel like I've talked a lot, but I think it's only fitting that you take the reins and talk about one of your favorite memories of the Stampede Corral first. Well, I got to think one of, the, one of my favorite things was when we went to the series with the throwback jerseys. So it was kind of, you know, it was new, but it, was, it gave me that old feeling I had back, in the, back when I was a kid and watching the Calgary Wranglers or, you know, these older teams that just don't exist anymore. So all in all, that, I believe we went to two games, was one of my favorite times in the Corral. Yeah, the Hitmen's Corral series last year. It, it was the yeah. Centennials, the Wranglers, and the Cowboys that they honored? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was really cool. One of my favorite things that I had experienced in the crowd were all the concerts that I had went to. I saw Deep Purple and Thin Lizzy there. I saw Megadeth and Anthrax 
and whoever else was on that gigantour way back in the day. And I went to that Jack White concert, which was really interesting because it was a no cell phones concert. He had these pockets that everyone had to put their cell phones in. And you were just there and you enjoyed Jack White and his band playing songs from across his entire career. And Crown Lands, one of my favorite Canadian bands, opened up for him. It was such an experience. It was incredible. I haven't got a lot of experiences with the Corral because I moved to Calgary in the 80s, late 80s. But I also remember playing hockey there, which was a really unique opportunity to, you know, sit on the benches where the NHL guys sat, you know, that, that I'd seen on TV because, I, you know, I was definitely watching the Flames when they played there. So it was, it, was, it was a neat experience to be able to take the ice just with a bunch of friends and play hockey for an hour. That would be an incredible experience. And you and I actually went to a WWE live show there in December 2018. Daniel Bryan and The Miz had a great match, but the, the match of the night was really Asuka and Charlotte Flair. It was such a treat to have that match on a house show and be able to see it from the third or fourth row on the floor. Oh, yeah, it was fantastic. And you could really see how good Charlotte Flair really is. Like, she's a true talent. She is one of the most talented women's wrestlers or wrestlers overall in North America today. Yeah, and she has all the, you know, all the tools in the, in the kit. You know, she, she talks well, she interacts well with the crowd, and her wrestling is spot on. Absolutely. And the wrestling was spot on in the showdown at the crowd, the Stu Hart 50th anniversary show. The talent on the show was insane. Yeah, just looking at the card and when I watched it, it was, uh, you know, it's one of those moments where you look back at younger you and go, what were you thinking? You should have been there. Absolutely. I mean, I was five or six years old when this show took place and I would have loved to have been there because Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Keith Hart, Bruce Hart, Davey Boy Smith, Chris Benoit, Brian Pillman, they, they all cut their teeth wrestling for Stampede Wrestling. Yeah, it's just a fantastic lineup of you know, guys that I'd pay to see if just one of them was in a show coming. And the whole Absolutely. lineup was filled with them. But, and not just those seven, right? Dory Funk, he had ties to Stampede Wrestling, and his brother Terry Funk had some ties to Stampede Wrestling as well. But Dory wrestled in Stampede Wrestling throughout the 1970s and defended his NWA World Heavyweight title against the likes of Archie Stomper Goldie. Abdullah the Butcher and Les Thornton. He even challenged the Stomper for the Stampede North American Heavyweight title in 1974 and had a brief run with the International Tag Team Championship in 1979 with his partner Larry Lane. And Terry, he didn't have that same level of history, but he had come to Calgary during his time as NWA World Heavyweight Champion and he defended the championship against the Stomper and against Larry Lane. So th there's nine guys on this show that had worked Stampede Wrestling and worked for Stu Hart over his 
50 years in wrestling at this point. Yeah, it's just a, just a treat to see the entire show. And you got, you got to kind of wonder what kind of stories there are in the corral, the backstage stuff that, you know, no one's, no one's ever talked about or probably ever will. And well, those nine guys we've mentioned already are phenomenal wrestlers. The other wrestlers on the card are no slouch. Rad Radford, also known as Louis Spicoli later in his career. The one, two, three kid later known as X-Pac, Sean Waltman and Razor Ramon. I mean, Scott Hall was there wrestling a match in the Stampede Corral. And all three of these guys delivered in these matches and they would have been perfect fits for Stampede Wrestling in the 1980s if their careers had taken them there before their times in the WWF and WCW. Oh, without a doubt. And, you know, it would have been nice to see them when they were a little younger. That's one of the great things we got to experience with Stampede Wrestling was guys moving in and through with, from other territories that you got to see locally. Absolutely. And it, it's not a slight to anyone on this card, but in my research for this event, there were, there were some talent cancellations. Dean Douglas, later Shane Douglas in ECW and WCW, Abdullah the Butcher, and Shawn Michaels were originally scheduled to appear, but unfortunately weren't able to make it. According to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, the main event was actually supposed to be Shawn Michaels challenging Bret Hart for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship, but unfortunately he had to pull out his as he was still recovering from a concussion. That match would have been amazing at this point in their career. Oh, it would have been fantastic and to see that. Oh, I can't even believe that he could have been on the card, either one of those guys, on top of what they had. Well, Andy... Obviously, whenever you talk about Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, there's always the little bit of confusion or a little bit of skepticism around, well, yeah, Michaels dropped out, but did he really want to to lose to Bret Hart in his own town? Yeah, and there's, you know, there is the talk that he's just not the type to let someone beat him yeah. and put him over. So on on the broadcast, the first match, is Chris Benoit defeating Rad Radford, who, as I mentioned, was Louis Spicoli. This one really, it pained me to watch. And it wasn't because it wasn't an amazing match, because it was. There's just so much tragedy tied up between these two wrestlers. Obviously, everybody knows Chris Benoit and the tragedy that took place, the double murder or the double homicide suicide, especially after the bone-chilling Dark Side of the Ring episodes from earlier this season. And I'm not going to get into it here. If any of our listeners want to know more about this, then they should go watch Dark Side of the Ring. Rest in peace to Nancy and Daniel. Louis Spicoli, it's such a shame to think of what could have been for him because he, he tragically lost his battle with addiction five days after his 27th birthday after receiving news that his mother was terminally ill. So just over two years after this match took place, he was gone. And I'm not sure how many people remember, even know Louis from his wrestling days, but he's often credited as the innovator of the Death Valley driver. And he bounced between WWF, ECW, and WCW, often working as enhancement talent. But he had brief runs in AAA in Mexico and FMW in Japan, 
where he would work with guys like Sabu, Mike Awesome, Ray Mysterio Jr., and Psychosis. It's terrible that we lost him. This match is notable in history because it was the first match and the first event to actually hold an interpromotional match between a WCW talent and a WWF talent during the Monday Night Wars, which really shows how much Stu Hart was respected by decision makers in both WCW and WWF. Yeah, I think he was a cornerstone of the business in everyone's eyes. Yeah, it's one of those things where in the 1990s, you just didn't expect to see this stuff ever. And I, the only other match I can think of is the one that took place in ECW where you had Mike Awesome versus Taz. Yeah, it's really rare to see any kind of cross-promotional match. There seems to be, uh, you know, the territory's got bigger but the the lines are a lot tighter than they were in the old days where guys would travel one to another absolutely you would often see guys come to alberta from vancouver or from the awa and you you just don't see that with the wwf and wcw you certainly don't see it now but anyway getting into the match the two men lock up and Radford, he powers Benoit into the corner. And after breaking that lockup, they engage in a test of strength and Radford forces Benoit to the mat, but he's able to bridge out and then executes a beautiful Northern light suplex while their hands are still locked together, which is just a phenomenal move. Yeah, he definitely had all the talent in the world. We quickly go to some exchanges of arm bars, some really smart technical transitions, like Benoit utilizing a judo throw to break Radford's hold and lock one on himself. And this technical exchange ends when Radford finally has enough and backs Benoit into a corner and it attacks the midsection with some shoulders. But Benoit is able to whip Radford into the opposite corner and when he rebounds, sends him flying into the air with a back body drop. Well, Radford's down on the mat. He locks in a side headlock and Radford is able to escape via side suplex. And this one, Benoit landed high up on his neck. He attempts a knee drop to the down Benoit, but Benoit manages to roll out of the way just at the last minute. And after a couple of strikes from Benoit, he delivers a bridging German suplex in the middle of the ring for a two count. And both men are up to their feet. Radford puts Benoit down with a scoop slam and he heads up to the top rope and Benoit meets him there and launches both Radford and himself into the middle of the ring with a second rope superplex for the three count. This was a technical mastery from both these guys. Benoit, everyone talks about how amazing he was technically, but Radford, if people remember him, they remember him as a jobber they don't really recognize his technical skill. And this match really showed it off. Oh, and that move off the top rope is, you know, just to watch is something kind of unbelievable that you even try it. It just adds so much height to the move that you're kind of in awe when you watch it. Well, there were a couple of, 
superplexes throughout this show. And I, I don't think I've ever seen a show with so many superplexes on it. And I've, I'm going to have to go back and watch some 1995 WWF and WCW just to see, were, were they doing this a lot? Because now you just, you don't really see it that often. Yeah, it's, uh, and I think it, it's more of a finishing move now than kind of a, you know, the, that's probably not it. It's probably more that it's a, just an amazing card. So you saw more than you normally would. True. Uh, so we go to the next match, one, two, three kid, Sean Waltman, X-Pac, whatever you want to call him. Uh, defeating Keith Hart, the firefighter of the Hart family. One, two, three kid. He's in control of this one really er early. He's utilizing arm drags, headlocks. He keeps Keith grounded until Keith manages to, to bring down one, two, three kid with some arm drags of his own. And Ed Whalen hit the nail on the head with this. He says the speed in the ring is electrifying. Um, we're less than a minute into the match and these two are just flying around the ring and they've probably delivered four or five arm drags to each other. They're just going full tilt. Really, it's one of the fastest matches or the fastest starts to a match I think I've seen in a long time. And one, two, three kid, he was really a barometer of in-ring ability in the WWF. And watching this match really made me think, uh, Keith Hart could have made it in the WWF if he wanted to. Yeah, and he was, you know, Keith Hart's one of the guys I remember from watching right from the beginning. And when he got going, he was, it was one move after the other after the other. Yeah, uh, I, I hope that we get to see more of him as we watch more of the old Stampede just because he he really shone in this match. And at one point, Kid throws him out between the second and the third rope. And in my notes, I had originally written, are these matches being competed under old school stampede wrestling rules? Because they never actually said it. And Kid's quick to follow with the dive over the top rope to attack Keith on the outside. And... Ed Whalen at this point is going, I think Keith's head hit the table. He hit the table because the announcer's table is right outside of the ring. There's no camera angle to back it up and there's no stopping the match. Um, knowing what we know about concussions now, if Keith was really rocked, I think they would have a, a responsibility to end the match or go home really quickly. But back in the ring, he takes a vertical suplex from the one, two, three kid and Kid starts to showboat to the crowd a little bit before going up to the top rope and landing a splash to the downed Keith Hart for a two count. Of course, this frustrates him. He's acting as the heel in this match, and he goes back up to the top rope to try the splash again, but he misses, and he injures his left knee. And uh, I love when wrestlers sell missing a move like this because it gives such a great opportunity for Keith Hart to take control and set up that figure four leg lock and really give the crowd that that moment where they think the hometown boy Keith Hart is going to beat 
the WWF superstar. But one, two, three kid manages to roll him up and hold on to the tights and get that three count victory. Yeah, it was an excellent ending to the match. I think, you know, as the hometown boy, I wanted to see Keith Hart win. But just seeing him competitive in the match and in a really good match is, you know, it's a win in itself. Absolutely. We've only seen Keith Hart once or twice in the Stampede Wrestling that you and I have rewatched. And I, I can't wait to see more of him because if this is him wrestling after not having worked for six or five or six years, I can't imagine how good he was when he was working multiple times a week, every week. Yeah, he was fun to watch. You know, he was high energy, high, high speed, a lot of passion in his in-ring interviews I found were pretty good. Now, speaking of fun to watch, this next match, Razor Ramon defeating Owen Hart to retain the WWF Intercontinental Championship. And Owen Hart is the heel in Calgary at his father's tribute show. And, that, and that's just beautiful. You know, that really is a tribute to the family, I think. It was so fun to watch because... 1987 Stampede Wrestling that we've watched, Owen is beloved and everyone's cheering for him. And I never thought I would see Owen Hart booed in Calgary, but here it is. He's getting booed against Razor Ramon, the bad guy. Yeah, it's it's funny how the fans go, you know? And this match delivered on every single... Uh, measure and every single metric you ever want to ask if it's going to deliver it hits the ground running owen he attempts a running crossbody to razor but razor just stands there and catches him and throws himself up and over him with a fallaway slam and then clotheslines him over the top rope and out of the ring and that answers my question earlier if these were being competed under stampede wrestling rules they're not, or maybe they just don't compete under Stampede Wrestling rules for WWF's championships. Oh, that could be. Owen takes a moment before getting himself back in the ring, but Razor's in control. He catches Owen's arm and slaps him on the back of the head a little bit, and Owen battles out and tries to reach the ropes. But Razor, he's still holding that arm, and Owen can't get to the ropes. So then Owen decides, oh, I'm going to try the other side. He tries to go to the other side, but Razor's still holding on to that arm. And it got to the point where Owen is running around in circles around Razor and tries to grab the rope as he goes. Yeah, Razor's, I hadn't seen him in a while, and it's nice to watch his work because there's kind of, uh, there's something about his style that's really enjoyable to watch. Kind of the, he's a, dick but it's enjoyable to watch him work yeah he's, he's that cool jerk where yeah he's mean to everyone else but he's actually mean to the bad guys so i like him more i love that that spot where owen's running around him trying to grab the ropes and I, I thought what what a creative way to tell a story without putting any sort of miles on the body right because you didn't have to take a big move to tell that story it, it was just it was so simple and it was fantastic. Yeah, it was a good decision, whoever came up with that. 
but coming out of that, Razor whips Owen into the corner, and Owen manages to get his foot up to create enough distance between him and Razor to get up to the top rope and launch himself off with a missile drop kick. And he celebrates. He's celebrating knocking Razor onto the mat, and the crowd is just giving it to him. And then he turns around, Razor's up in the corner, and he delivers a couple of strikes in the corner. And when he, he whips Razor into the opposite corner, the top turnbuckle actually breaks. And Razor's down in the middle of the ring and the rope's flying into the middle of the ring. And Owen grabs the top rope and starts to choke Razor with it before throwing him to the outside in front of Ed Whalen's announced team table. Again, it was just so smart and such great awareness of what's going on because they're battling in front of the the announcer's table and the ring crew is repairing the top turnbuckle at the same time. And I didn't notice that the rope was even repaired until it was like a minute or two after they got back in. Yeah, they did a good job of adjusting to that. So once they're back in the ring, Owen gets a two count following a spinning heel kick and he celebrates for a moment thinking it was a three count. But when he turns back around, Razor starts lighting Owen up with some punches before uh, gently seating Owen on the top rope and giving him a superplex into the middle of the ring. And Razor is up and he's telling the crowd that it's time for the Razor's edge. But when he's going for the setup, the one, two, three kid runs in and out to the top rope and Razor grabs him and throws him into the middle of the ring into Owen and then clotheslines one, two, three kid over the top rope to the outside. And of course, Owen, he just had a whole man thrown at him. So he's a little staggered. He's a little rocked. Razor goes to set him up for the razor's edge again, but Owen manages to uh, backdrop razor over the top rope to the outside in front of the announcer's table. And, Owen quickly follows. He rolls out and he grabs the microphone from Ed Whalen and just hits Razor in the head with it. And he gets a three count from the referee. But the referee immediately reverses the decision and tells him to continue the match. And at the beginning, it's all Owen after the match continues. He, he attempts a vertical suplex and Razor manages to block it and quickly roll him up for the victory. Yeah, this was a really, really good match, I think, to showcase the old stampede wrestling where you have a little outside interference, you hit a guy in the head with the mic. Like, it really had a bit of that old no-holds-barred kind of feel to it. The thing I really liked was how, how loose it felt and how, in the moment, the two of them seemed to be reacting to each other and to the crowd and to things happening in the ring. Like, that... That top rope breaking, I'm sure that a lot of wrestlers would not have the in-ring presence and knowledge and the ability to roll out and captivate the entire crowd while that's getting fixed just out of sight. Like It, it was almost like a magic trick. Yeah, and you know, to do it at that level, it requires both guys to have that same in-ring knowledge. One of my favorite Razor Romo matches. Yeah, he's, I always liked him. Uh, like I say, I'm not sure exactly what it is. The cockiness, I think, is a lot of it. 
but this was a great match of his. So the next match features one of my favorite acts in Stampede Wrestling, the team of Bad Company, Bruce Hart and Brian Pillman. They defeat the Funk Brothers, Dory Funk and Terry Funk by disqualification. Bruce and Terry, they're starting the match. The men on the apron quickly get involved. Pillman hangs Terry up on the second rope, lets Bruce elbow him every single bounce. It's like, like a seesaw just getting elbowed in the head. And then Bruce tags in Pillman and Funk quickly grabs Pillman in a headlock and delivers a mule kick low blow before tagging in Dory. It was, I, I don't know if referee Jurgen Herman was refereeing this match, but I hope he was just because it was so, it was such a throwback to, to those days, to the stampede wrestling days where bad company and the heels would just go at it and just be mayhem. Yeah, and doing everything, everything they could to distract the ref and cheat a little bit. Yeah, and Terry, he's not the legal man at this point, but he goes over to the announcer's table and he wrestles it away from Ed Whalen, like just grabs it out of his hands and he sets it up outside of the ring and he suplexes Pillman through it. And then he grabs Pillman and throws him into the ring post and then back into the ring and Dory delivers a double underhook suplex for a two count. Um, Pillman. What desperately wants to tag Bruce in. He needs to tag Bruce in at this point. But Dory continues to control him and throws him over the top with a vertical suplex and a two count before tagging Terry back in. Terry takes a couple of hard chops from Pillman before dropping him with a DDT and a pin attempt that Bruce is in and breaks up. Um, Dory and Terry the deliver a Teen vertical suplex to Pillman, but Pillman gets back up to his feet with the help of the ropes, and he just he ducks a wild punch from Terry Funk, and he tags in Bruce quickly. Bruce and Terry, they, they spill to the outside of the ring, over the guardrail, into the crowd. Bruce throws Terry into the guardrail, and Dory is over there, and he's over the guardrail to brawl with Bruce before getting thrown into the guardrail himself. Terry is he's busted open. He's bleeding. And Bruce returns to visit him and he wraps a chair around his neck. Uh, and then both men are up and they start to walk towards the ring. And th- this was one of my favorite comical moments in a very serious match, a very violent match, where Terry takes the chair off and he throws it directly up into the air. And it comes straight back down and just hits him on the head and just boings off his head. And he's kind of staggered momentarily. He's... He's really selling that he just hit himself with a chair in the head. Um, But Bruce throws him back in the ring and quickly tags in Pillman, who he bites Terry's bloody wound before setting him up in the corner for a series of punches. He runs across the ring and punches Dory on the apron for good measure. Pile driver delivered to Terry only gets a two count because Dory breaks that pin up. A DDT to Terry only gets a two count. And Terry manages to deliver a side slam to Pillman and both men battle to their respective partners and tag each other out. Bruce and Dory, they brawl momentarily and Bruce just, he whips Dory off the ropes to catch him with his running clothesline, but Terry is there to break up the pin. Pillman gives a stiff clothesline for his troubles and Bruce, Bruce dives off the top rope to a down Dory to get a two count. Terry's in the ring now with the chair. And 
Following a clothesline and pin attempt by Bruce, Terry breaks up the pin with the chair, resulting in the team of Bad Company winning via disqualification. And, of course, whenever you win by disqualification, you're never happy. So these two teams, they just brawl. Like, they, they brawl and it goes to commercial. And I was half expecting us to come back and to see them still brawling and then go back to commercial again. <laughs> but that didn't happen. But this match was just, it was, it was fun. It was everything you wanted out of Bad Company and the Funk Brothers. There, there was a good mix of, of weapons used, some outside of the ring stuff, some solid wrestling in the ring too, and some good storytelling there. Yeah, it was all in all uh, a good kind of throwback match to what you'd grown up watching with these guys, you know, on the week-in, week-out basis. And a little more polished, I think. I'm not sure who was handling the production for the show. Maybe it was WWF at this point, but I know that Bruce Hart had booked this show there was definitely a step up in production quality from stampede wrestling in 1987 to this. Yeah. But it's time for a main event. We have Bret Hart defeating Davey boy Smith for the WWF world heavyweight championship in his hometown of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. It's the last time Bret Hart defended the championship in Calgary and what a title defense it was. Both men enter on motorcycles, and the crowd is just rabid for Bret Hart. He briefly gets out of the ring to give his trademark glasses to his own father, and Stu is sitting there ringside watching his son wrestle his son-in-law in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, as I'm sure he did countless times through the 1980s. Yeah, and just, just I imagine to see just the pure support that the fans had for, I think, both these guys must have meant a lot to Stu. Well, and how far his son came, because his son at this point, 1995, in Calgary, Alberta, he is the biggest star on the planet. There's no movie star that can compare. There's no one else in the WWF that can compare. Hulk Hogan, no one cares. It's Bret Hart. And to see his son be the biggest star in the world, wrestle his son-in-law in front of him, for him, it must have been such a uh, heartwarming and proud moment for Stu. Yeah, really, really good to see lock up and Davey obviously if you have ever seen pictures of Davey Boy Smith in WWF you know he's pretty muscular you know he's pretty strong he powers Brett backwards a couple of times before just taking Brett down but as everyone who's ever watched a Bret Hart match knows if you're on the mat with Brett he can out wrestle you it doesn't matter how big you are yeah you know that's when the basically growing up with wrestling your entire life starts to starts to turn things in your way in your favor i should say Uh, brett and davy they end up in the corner and brett delivers a couple of shoulders and a stiff punch 
but Davy whips Brett across the ring a couple of times before his stalling vertical suplex. And Brett's down, and Davy's heading to the top rope, but Brett springs to his feet, and he meets him at the top rope. And I don't know if he was playing possum or what, but there is the hitman delivering a big superplex to the British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith. And both men are shaken up after that. Yeah, that's a lot of weight hitting the canvas. I, I, I bet if you're in the front few rows, you felt that one. Davy is the first to his feet and only by a fraction of a second because Brett is right there with him. And he drops Davy onto his knee with an atomic drop and then a clothesline to Davy before a leg sweep and a rollover for a pin, pin attempt. Obviously, it's only a two count. That's way too early to finish this match. Pile driver by Brett only gets a two count. Davy just powers out of it. And the crowd is upset with referee Jurgen Herman for counting too slow. So I don't know if referee Jurgen Herman was refereeing the tag team match, but he's here in the main event and he's already made the crowd upset. Which is what you want from uh, when he's refereeing. Absolutely. A, a backbreaker to Davey by Brett and Brett heads up to the top rope for a dive. Davey gets his leg up and stops the hitman's attack and running clothesline to Brett knocks both men down and they, they're battling to their feet. Davey throws Brett to the opposite corner. Brett jumps over Davey and referee Jurgen Herman is a little too close into the corner and he happens to miss the, the mule kick to Brett Hart's nether region. Then you can't fault him for that. He's older now by 10 years and he couldn't catch it back then. <laughs> Davey, he turns around, he picks Brett up for the running power slam, but Brett's holding on to that top rope. and He won't let go, but Davey manages to power, power him off. And when, as soon as he breaks it, you can tell that Davey is off balance. He stumbles backwards a step or two and Brett falls directly on top of Davey for a two count. Brett runs the ropes and Davy tries to jump over him, but Brett grabs Davy's legs out of midair and throws him back first onto the mat and tries to set up the sharpshooter. But Davy pokes Brett in the eyes to interrupt the setup. No doubt waiting for the first red card. That, that's just such a cool sequence to see Bret Hart pick Davy Boy Smith out of midair, slam him, and try to set up the sharpshooter. Just such a cool sequence. Davy grabs Brett's waist and pushes him into the mat, rolling backwards into a pin attempt, but Brett's momentum is too much, and he manages to roll through and reverse the pin attempt, and he gets the three count and victory, and he retains the championship. And the crowd goes wild. The match was fantastic. Obviously, they said that, hey, this is a shortened version for television broadcast. Maybe the master tape that you and I were able to acquire has more of this match on it. We'll just we'll have to find out. Yeah, that'd be amazing if it did. It's definitely two of my favorite wrestlers of all time. So, what did you think of the show overall, Mitch? I thought it was... It had a really good feel of the old show. 
I, I love that they had Ed Whalen because, you know, without him, I don't think it wouldn't have that same feel. I mean, he just adds a feel to the broadcast that it takes you back. And the matches, you know, like we mentioned before, it's all top-notch guys. And, and really, you know, they had a couple matches that really had that old stampede feel with some interference and some shenanigans and the odd bad refing move. And it, it just kind of had a little piece of everything you wanted to see. And in a way, kind of like, you know, like an NHL all-star game or an all-star game where you've got so many top guys on the ticket. Yeah, but unlike an NHL all-star game, these guys are trying. These guys are putting on uh, phenomenal matches. I, I think there is a little bit of pride at stake for a lot of these guys to show Stu just how much they have improved since leaving Stampede Wrestling. Not not to kind of rub it in his face, but to to make him proud. Yeah, I might have used the wrong reference there. You know, it would be more like an Olympic team where you're picking just the best guys. I think my point was more just it's the so many of the top guys in the industry all on one card really kind of excites me about it. Yeah, it was it was a phenomenal card. I uh, like I said the, the the Razor Ramon and Owen Hart match. I think that's my favorite Razor Ramon match. Yeah, it was a fantastic match, and you know Owen never disappoints. I don't think I've seen him in a match yet where I wasn't. Man, that was a great match. Like. You know, and we've seen quite a few. So, you, you know, even the best have the odd off night, but I haven't seen one from him yet. No, and it's Owen's consistency is, is remarkable. I mean, this is eight years later after, after his debut, after his PWI Rookie of the Year award, and he's still, he's still so fast. He's still so athletic. He can still out-wrestle anyone in any style. He is... The most natural wrestling talent I think I've ever seen. Yeah, he was a, a phenom for sure. And the, the guys that they brought in that weren't part of Stampede, One, Two, Three Kid, Razor Ramon, and Rad Radford, all three of those guys delivered in their match. They were all fantastic. They all would have fit in with Stampede Wrestling so well if they had had that opportunity. Yeah, really. I mean, any one of them, you could, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you were going over old footage and one of them was there because, you know, their style, their ability, it, it just is in the same vein. So, you know, I just suspect there was other promotions like Stampede out there that these guys came out of. Oh, without a doubt. It, it just, I thought this was a phenomenal show. I thought it was absolutely the perfect show to honor Stu Hart and his career in wrestling with because it is 50 years in wrestling. That is just, it's mind boggling. That is so much time spent dedicated to professional wrestling and creating jobs in Calgary and creating stars that went on to become worldwide stars and the biggest stars in the, in the biggest promotion in the world. 
and who are still remembered to this day. I mean, you talk about Owen Hart, everyone still knows him, everyone loves him. Bret Hart, same thing. Davy Boy Smith, same thing. Brian Pillman. These names, they, they live on forever, and they, they came out of Stampede Wrestling, and they came out of Stu Hart. And just seeing them all come together to honor them was just so amazing for me to see. Yeah, it was, like I said, I think at the start of the broadcast, I, you know, I'd like to go back and kick myself in the balls for not going to that show when it was there. Because, you know, that, that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and it was, you know, I, I guarantee no one that went to that show came out unhappy. They were all just amazed at what they just seen. Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to wrap this podcast up, this episode up. Obviously, follow us on our social media accounts. Our Twitter is at WrestleRodeoCA. Instagram and Facebook are both WrestlingRodeoCA. And you'll be able to check out the program for this show and a newspaper article from the Calgary Sun about this show on those social media platforms. So make sure you go there. Make sure you give us a like, a follow, and leave a comment. We love to talk to you guys just whenever you get the opportunity to reach out to us. We love to talk about Stampede Wrestling. We love to talk about wrestling that's happening now. Just any anywhere, any social media platform is perfect for us. So I, I hope that we hear from you guys. Yeah, and if you haven't seen this show for the Stu Hart tribute, do yourself a favor and you know look it up on YouTube and have a watch because it's a fantastic card and it was a great show. And in the meantime and in between time, that's it. Another edition of Wrestling Rodeo.